So Watley says to me, hey, I can make Catholic jokes. I used to be Catholic. Now, see, I don't think it is a Catholic joke. I think it's more of a Raquel Wells joke. What was it? No, I said, hand me the buoys. <laughs> don't you see what Watley is after? Total joke-telling immunity. He's already got the big two religions covered. If he ever gets Polish citizenship, there'll be no stopping him. What are you gonna do? I think this Father Curtis might be very interested to hear what Watley has the Pope doing with Raquel Welch. <laughs> hey, Beth, Arnie, it's Elaine. Um, thought you guys might want to have lunch. Give me a call. Bye. They're not getting a baby, so you're taking them to lunch. I thought it would be nice. Poor Beth. Hey, Arnie's just as upset. Oh, screw him. Listen to this. Marcy comes over and she tells me that her ex-boyfriend was over late last night and yada, 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 I'm really tired today. You don't think she'd yada, yada sex? I've yada, yada sex. Really? Yeah. I met this lawyer, we went out to dinner, I had the lobster bisque, we went back to my place, yada, 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 I never heard from him again. But you yada yada over the best part. No, I mentioned the bisque. <laughs> but you know what? I thought you were mysterious like my mother until it turned out the mysterious just meant depressed, all right? Hard to reach. I mean, <laughs> I'm dying here. I don't like going out. You know that I get anxiety when I have to meet people. You know how hard that is. Everything you touch turns to shit! Like King Midas's idiot brother. Jesus. But if you two aren't the biggest pair of fuck-ups I've ever met in my entire life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Give Us a Second. A mini-sode series. Brought to you by the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is our 56th mini-sode and this week we are discussing our favorite episodes of Seinfeld Volume 5. And much like our experience in real life, it's material that you can just dive back into at any time. Exactly. It has been an entire year since the last time we wow. did a Seinfeld Give Us a Second. And the crazy thing is we're planning on doing a lot more, although this might be the only one this year. But we've got a whole list of these episodes we're going down. At one point, it was going to be a finite amount of episodes, right? But it's It just, still is, okay. but there's going to be as many as 10 parts of this. And <laughs> in, in at least one moment in time, I think you said to me, I don't see any reason why we couldn't just do every episode of Seinfeld. Well, that's true. Yeah. There's a few that I don't like. That would actually maybe be an interesting version to do. One time, yeah. pick our least favorites. But... Yeah, for the most part, I could pretty much take almost any group and make it into something, because I do enjoy them pretty much in general. I find it to be a very relatable show. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Before we dive back into Seinfeld, let's remind everyone to follow the show on X slash Twitter at GreatestPod. You can reach us via email, greatestpod at gmail.com. Please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Reach out to us if you'd like a free sticker or if you have a listener request. We'll go through all the details with you. Hit us up over email or on X slash Twitter. Find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983. 
and Matt Crosby. So let's dive in. I want to kick off this Give Us a Second, Volume 5 of our Seinfeld exploration, and say we're only going to do five episodes this time. There you go. The previous four parts all had six. Well, we're starting to dig deeper. Yeah, I have a lot of notes on the implant, the first episode we're doing. So panicked, I'm texting Matt days in advance cuts. saying. Yeah, we got to trim the list. Six? Uh, I think it's going to be five. But let's dive in. I got plenty to say about a couple of these. I think they're five good ones. It's a nice mix. But there are some themes. Unintentional themes, which I think has happened every time. 100%. There always ends up being this weird crossover. And maybe that just speaks to the show. For sure, it does. Callbacks and tie ins. Although some of them definitely aren't intentional. Yeah, because we each came up with a bunch. We have a huge list of these episodes now. And when I'm putting them into groups to do, I'm just sort of trying to mix up what seasons they're from. I'm not really thinking of anything else. I'm not thinking of what they're about, who's in them. Mm And then, yeah, these weird coincidences emerge, and there's a lot of things that are going to be through lines to this one. So what we're going to do is I'm going to give the title, the episode, when it aired, writer-director, guest stars, and then I'm going to do a brief description of the plot, and then Matt's going to dive in with whatever pops into his head first. I want to hear his initial take after I give all the details. So he's going to have- Love it the opportunity to kick us off in whatever direction he wants to go for every single one of these. So get ready. All right. The trick is not to think too hard. Think of yourself as Freddie Quell in The Master. Easy. This is the Rorschach test, except it's just whatever you think of after I'm done talking. All right. Our first selection is The Implant, season four, episode 19, originally aired February 25th, 1993. I should point out, This is one of those weird instances where Netflix is a little off on the episode. So they have it as episode 18 and not 19. I think they combined two of them, a two-parter, into one. The episode was written by Peter Melman and directed by Tom Sharone, guest starring Terry Hatcher as Sidra and Megan Mullally as Betsy. While Elaine destabilizes Jerry's interest in pursuit of a woman after she tells him the woman in question has breast implants, George travels with his lady friend to an out-of-town funeral in hopes of cementing his standing in the relationship, only to get busted, double-dipping chips. Well, the first thing I think of for this episode is, can you imagine us, there's a girl in our friend group, and we all like go to the gym at the same time together? <laughs> no. like That is something from shows that definitely never hit in my life. I know that there's people that go to the gym, but I don't think it's much of like a communal experience yeah i just think that with sitcoms you have to get them into like funny situations yeah they got to come up with new places interesting situations so there's always a leap of faith you have to just pretend that these busy people in new york are coinciding at this gym all the time Mm -hmm. because what are the chances that elaine would be at the gym the same time as sidra more than once totally how would that be a thing i know (laughs) Yeah, the gym that they frequent throughout the episode is just called the New York Health Club. It does seem kind of similar to the one with the Jimmy or the JFK Jr. and right. those situations. Jerry, his situation with Sidra at the beginning of the episode, it's kind of hard to put a finger on it exactly. It seems like maybe he dated her already at least there's once. A, there's a, 
a date coming up, it doesn't seem like it's the first time they've hung out. Yes. I will say, without trying to be a, a creep or a weirdo, it does not appear to me that there's anything going on with Sidra that would make me think she has fake breasts. She's working out in a pretty tight leotard. I don't have the sense that she has implants at all. That's not a knock on Terry Hatcher. She's such a gorgeous woman, but yeah. there isn't anything about looking at her where I'm thinking, yes, this is a woman that has implants. It's probably it's a weird th- casting choice. Yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things where they write the episode and then they're finding the girl and Terry Hatcher walks in and somebody's like, this is the girl. <laughs> and you can kind of get that. Elaine takes joy in ruining Jerry's fun. I was wondering if she's coming across maybe a little too bitchy. Is there any reason this, for her to be taking joy in this? It seems to happen from time to time Yeah, on the show. Their relationship throughout the whole run of the show is always fascinating yeah. for the obvious reasons, but also for some of the subtle ones as well. And they definitely have almost like a competitive love-hate type thing, yeah. too. There will be the occasional reference to them dating and then like a jab. Like it does come up from time to time. Yeah. Jerry, throughout the show's run, definitely made his way through a significant portion of the Desperate Housewives, with oh, Terry yeah. Hatcher being one of them. She also played Lois Lane. Right. In Which, the, what was that show called? Lois the, and Clark. The Real Life Adventures of Lois and Clark, something yeah. like that. We're doing an episode later where Jerry actually gets to date a girl named Lois. And there's Superman references in that episode, but there is also one in this episode. Yeah. Jerry's a, a leg man, according to Elaine, and then he has to diffuse her of this notion, but <laughs> it's such a weird concept. There was a time in this country where people were considered leg men and breast men, but okay. not ass men. And yeah. I guess there were, there always have been, but it, it, mm-hmm. this is an example of something we've talked about before, <laughs> about how our culture has completely shifted in terms of what they're interested in. There's just different eras. The whole concept of being a leg man, I kind of agree with Jerry. I have legs. <laughs> now, granted, I also have an ass, too. but Yeah. I yeah. get it, though. I get what he means. It, it just seems like such a weird thing. Yeah, but it definitely wasn't uncommon. You do hear it. I think something that you could forget about this episode is that Jerry wants Elaine to spy. That's part of it. Right. Now, what ends up happening ends it's up being a crazy worse. accident. Yeah. but. I don't know that I ever really thought about it. Like, yeah, he is actually sending her in there to do what happens. You do often forget that the people on this show are horrible. <laughs> no, I don't forget that. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes you're reminded in new and interesting ways. True. That's a better way of saying it. Good workout. Tremendous workout. It's a pretty girl. Tremendous girl. <laughs> She's the one you went out with last night? Yeah, I really like her. You know, uh, they're fake. What? Don't say that. Nah, they're fake. How do you know? I can tell. You know how you're always bragging how you can spot a lesbian? I'm not bragging. I happen to have a very keen lesbian eye. Hi, how you doing? Oh. Come on, don't you think they seem just a bit too perfect? Yes, they do. So into breasts. I thought you were a leg man. A leg man? Why would I be a leg man? I don't need legs. I have legs. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen her naked in the locker room? No. Oh, well, then I can't accept your testimony. Maybe if you've seen her naked. I don't want to see her naked. Well, I do. Well, that's your problem. 
problem. Look, you made the allegation. The least you could do is follow up. Uh, Jerry, what am I going to do? I'm going to go in there. I'm going to spy on her in the sauna? Yes. Go in there. Do a little investigative journalism. I need to know. But a few more dates you can find out for yourself. Don't be so sure. Look at George. He's on his ninth date with Betsy. He still hasn't gotten anywhere with her. What's his problem? Well, every time he tries to make a move, something screws up. Like on their last date, they were on the couch, but she was sitting on his wrong side. Wrong side? Yeah, she was on his right side. He can't make a move with his left hand. Can't go left. He can't go left? No. I'm lefty. Can't go right. What about women? Do they go left or right? No, we just play defense. One of the subplots of this episode is that George can't make a move with his left hand, and Jerry states that because Jerry himself is left-handed, Jerry can't make a move with his right hand, strongly implying that George is right-handed. However, throughout the series, it is frequently shown that George is left-handed also. The writers skillfully sidestep this by never having it stated explicitly by Jerry in this conversation that George is right-handed. He just sort of <laughs> insinuates it. He can't go to his right. But then he does say, I'm left-handed, I can't go. Yeah, right? he says yeah. it about himself, yeah. but when he's talking about George, he never actually says George is right-handed. He just says, George can't go to his right. I don't know. Some of these runners that they have in these episodes. Or George can't go to his left. I, I can't get it. You're just like, whatever, this is just throwaway stupid, but they still make me laugh. Like, they put you in situations that are funny. Like, him explaining it isn't really funny, but then when George is trying to dive on the couch in front of her. <laughs> The long and short of it is that George has been dating Betsy for a bit, but they haven't advanced physically in the relationship. Betsy always seems to be seated on George's weaker side. It turns out that Betsy is actually hard of hearing in her right ear and watching George try to swap places with her on the couch. Oh, oh man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you would think that would be enough to ruin the night. I know. Sometimes they do things on Seinfeld that are so ridiculous, and then the characters don't react as if it was that ridiculous. You just kind of have to go for the ride sometimes for the joke. Okay. George will again date a woman hard of hearing when he goes out with Sienna, played by Katie Selverstone, in episode 22 of season six, The Face Painter. Okay. He's got a type. Remember Jerry says George is dating a crayon? (laughs) (laughs) Sienna. She works at the zoo. Sometimes the characters do cross a line that makes them seem even more hateable than they are usually. And George is mocking his girlfriend, Betsy, while she's on the phone with her back turned to him, while she's clearly receiving bad news. George comes off particularly bad in this episode. He's very hateable in this moment. A lot of times he has horrible things happening to him. (laughs) But he's definitely a douche in this episode. Yeah. Meanwhile, Jerry dumps Sidra after Elaine sees her topless in the sauna and decides her breasts are fake. As Elaine puts it, she's playing with Confederate money. (laughs) (laughs) Which is such a weird thing to say. Yeah. Obviously, the the whole thing of Jerry's character is being shallow, which Elaine calls out. Yes. And says you reach, like, new peaks of shallowness. So that is addressed in the episode, but it does seem kind of crazy to me that this would be the thing that cuts this off. Yeah, Jerry being very anti-breast implant is something that I would not have expected. Yeah. Because it was a different vibe in the 90s. I think people have now embraced natural look way more, especially online. You see people's comments all the time. And 
don't get me wrong every person man or woman is free to do what they want with their own body and that's their choice but it does seem like the sentiment has sort of turned against plastic surgery but that wasn't really the culture of the not as much no although i guess probably for some guys Yeah. yeah kramer claims a man at the health club who introduces himself as Saul Bass is actually author Salman Rushdie. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of Kramer's storyline in this episode, yeah. but it is kind of funny because these sorts of things only happen to people like Kramer. Yeah. And there's something relatable about this storyline to me because we kind of have friends in our lives that will tell you things sometimes and you don't believe them at all. And then they keep doubling down on it. It keeps getting dumber, what they're saying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Salman Rushdie, who Kramer believes he spotted at the health club, is a real-life British Indian writer whose 1988 fictional book, Satanic Verses, was critical of Muslims. The leader of Iran, Ayatollah Khomeini, issued a fatwa, Islamic religious declaration, calling on Muslims worldwide to assassinate Rushdie, forcing him into protective hiding. This is still ongoing. I know oh, wow. Matt probably has no idea, but no, he no. was stabbed, I think, last year maybe and lost an eye. He was attacked at a reading. Yeah, so not- this is a lifelong thing that has happened. Not shockingly, as soon as they said the name, I realized, oh, this is a reference that I should get, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> they recycled some of this for Curb. Yeah. In Curb, I forget who it is, but a fatwa is issued against Larry. But then Salman Rushdie himself is actually in the episode. Oh, wow. Yeah, I did do some reading up on it just so I was culturally aware. (laughs) In Salman Rushdie's nonfiction book, Joseph Anton, a memoir, Rushdie recounts bumping into Jerry Seinfeld at a cocktail party where Seinfeld nervously asked his opinion of the implant and, quote, visibly relaxed upon Rushdie's telling him that he had thought the episode was very funny. So almost immediately after... George is mocking his girlfriend who's being told of a death in her family. Uh He's in the coffee shop saying to Jerry and Kramer, quote, I like her too much. That's his excuse for why he can't make the move or whatever it is. And I'm just blown away by the audacity of this fucking asshole. No kidding. Mocking someone who's finding out a family member died and then saying, I like her too much. (laughs) Becky's aunt has died. The funeral is in Detroit. George's goal is to become consolation guy, and that way there will be a potential for an upgrade to boyfriend. Kramer then has a harebrained scheme to split death in the family 50% off bereavement tickets. And he's going to try to get the miles for it? It's a very convoluted thing. That becomes more convoluted once they get to the airport. The genius of Seinfeld often is that the details of the plot end up not mattering if the episode is super funny, but then oftentimes they do connect everything. That's the brilliance of the show, especially when Larry David got really fascinated in these interweaving stories. It goes to a whole other level. Sometimes, though, one of the stories is a little half-baked and not really fleshed out because you've got Kramer stuck between two things with the Salman Rushdie thing, but now he's involved with the ticket thing. The whole ticket plan never really goes anywhere because then he's like, oh, we bought two, and then we're going to return them. Yeah. But then there's Super Saver tickets that you can't return. 
I don't know. It gets very convoluted. I know. I did find myself feeling like this was an episode where things didn't all neatly tie back together. Like, it didn't matter because the implant piece of it is definitely well like, it's got two iconic things yeah, yeah you've got the double dipping of the chip and then you've got the implant right. and that is what counts totally. but yeah the actual connective threads don't all work and kramer doing the the ticket stuff almost feels superfluous because yeah just have george show up in detroit don't even worry about the ticket i mean the stuff. best thing about the ticket ends up him having to ask for a death certificate. Yeah, that is all funny, and yeah. him showing the picture of himself next to the coffin is a great bit at the yeah. end, and that's probably why you keep it in there. But I feel like the double dipping of the chip material is strong enough yeah. where you don't really need to involve Kramer and all Travel this didn't into need to it. be involved. Yeah, not necessarily. Yeah. Although I guess it makes sense that you're trying to tie in the whole thing with him being right. in higher standing in the relationship. But yes, he's going to need to get the death certificate for this plan to all work. Later, Elaine is once again in the sauna with Sidra, and when Elaine goes to introduce herself, she trips and falls, accidentally grabbing hold of Sidra's chest to brace herself. <laughs> There's some good stuff here. I like the dynamic of Sidra discussing Jerry with her friend and Elaine overhearing it. That's yeah. funny. Jerry being described as a Nazi is funny. Right. Elaine then recounts her tale to Jerry, sheepishly declaring that Sidra's breasts are both real and spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry is a tad miffed, yeah. although he really only has himself to blame. I know, he's going off of just Elaine's opinion. Well, the fact that he's breaking up with someone over the totally. her breasts being fake and not anything to do with her personality yeah. or what type of person she is. <laughs> But now he wants to get things going with Sidra all over again. George accompanies Betsy to Detroit for the wake, convinced that being supportive during Betsy's grief will accelerate their relationship. At first, George humiliates himself on an ill-fated quest for a copy of the death certificate for a woman he was not related to and had never met. That's bad enough. <laughs> but then George takes it up a notch in the Costanza way. Yeah. <laughs> He gets into a heated argument with Betsy's brother, Timmy, over the etiquette, or lack thereof, of double-dipping a chip. It escalates into a whole scene, complete with physical altercation, leading Betsy to end things with George once and for all. What are you doing? What? Did, did you just double-dip that chip? Excuse me? You double-dipped the chip. Double-dipped? What, what, what are you talking about? You dipped the chip, you took a bite, and you dipped again. So? That's like putting your whole mouth right in the dip. Look, from now on, when you take a chip, just take one dip and end it. Well, I'm sorry, Timmy. But I don't dip that way. Oh, you don't, huh? No. You dip the way you want to dip. I'll dip the way I want to dip. Give me the chip! Hey, hey, hey! Give me the chip! Help me, George! Get out! Get out! I never want to see you again! Go back to New York! Get out! Should be noted that Seinfeld did not invent the term double-dipping the chip. However, it did popularize it and make it way more mainstream. I was finding myself thinking, was the first time I ever heard this term? It, it would it have probably. been around this era, you know? I think it was probably the first time for a lot of people. Yeah. 
the exterior of the house in Michigan is the same as that in the bottle deposit where Newman is pursued by the farmer's daughter, if you remember that moment. Kieran Mulroney plays Timmy, the brother, became a little bit of a writer in Hollywood. He wrote the script for the Sherlock Holmes sequel, A Game of Shadows, and the 2017 Power Rangers live-action film. The television show Mythbusters tested the theory that double dipping was like, quote, putting your whole mouth right in the dip, which is what Timmy says. What did they find? The Mythbusters found that double dipping produced fewer microbes than putting all the dip in your mouth. Also, the amount of microbes present was negligible compared to the amount found in a regular dip, meaning that double dipping your chip really doesn't do anything other than just seem gross. That's what and I it is gross and yeah. impolite, but in terms of actual germs, it's not really doing anything. Right. Unless, of course, you're sick, then maybe you could get someone else sick. Well, yeah. <laughs> One of the best is when he's when George is trying to explain why he needs the death certificate, and he's talking with the priest, and he says <laughs> he's trying to put together a rudimentary scrapbook. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Admittedly, rudimentary scrapbook. <laughs> Jerry's hanging out with Sidra again, just blurts out, you know, that James Mansfield had some big breasts. Oh, this works. This gets <laughs> the uh, conversation going the direction he wanted it to. You know that Jane Mansfield had some big breasts. <laughs> really big, huge, just coming out the top of her dress. They were like choking her. I hear that's how she died. Yeah. <laughs> Have you noticed that women today are, you know, they seem bigger? Well, a lot of women are having them done. Really? Yeah. How do you like that? A lot of people ask me if I've had mine done. Ah, you know, people. (laughs) (laughs) Gets a little tiring. It's Uh, really none of their business. Oh, the nerve. (laughs) It's sort of ironic, though, because Mariska Hargitay is in an episode of Seinfeld, and Jane Mansfield is her mother. Uh. So they're talking about her mother's breasts in an episode. (laughs) Jerry has to deal with the usual parade while he's with a woman in his apartment. Kramer wanting to borrow a bathing suit. (laughs) Kramer's involved in way too much. I know. The Salman Rushdie thing goes nowhere. Exactly. So then he thinks he needs to go on a vacation. Now he wants to borrow the bathing suit. That's why he wanted to get the miles from George's scheme to go to Puerto Rico. The whole thing about your boys and I don't want your boys down there. Your boys should stay in their neighborhood. (laughs) That's all pretty good. Yeah. And then Elaine unwittingly enters cluing Sidra in that she and Jerry knew each other. Kramer takes it a step further by confirming a romantic history between them. Sidra dumps Jerry, thinking he used Elaine as a breast-feeling proxy, which, while not exactly true, isn't far off, because he did tell her to spy. But a great comeback moment. And by the way, they're real, and they're spectacular. (laughs) Sidra's parting shot to Jerry at the end of this episode was scripted as simply, and by the way, they're real. Terry Hatcher ad-libbed the kicker, and they are spectacular, which is then repeated by Jackie Childs in the finale. I also saw it suggested that Larry David was the one that told her to say it. Well, doesn't Elaine say it earlier in the episode? Right, yeah. yeah. Which would mean that either 
she had thought to connect it herself yeah. or that Larry David did, which right. I don't know who, who did or didn't. But evidently it wasn't scripted that way, but it is a pretty good connection to the Elaine line. Obviously, George's ticket scheme fails when all he can produce is a picture of himself next to the coffin. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a funny prop there. Yeah. <laughs> next up, we have The Dinner Party, Season 5, Episode 13, originally airing February 3rd, 1994, written by Larry David and directed by Tom Sharone. En route to a dinner party, Jerry and Elaine get hung up at a bakery while George and Kramer encounter their own mishaps while trying to buy wine to bring. The only thing that I can think of about this episode is I hate having to add any errand when I'm on my way somewhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's like the worst thing in the world. I don't know if it's Elaine that already has this idea that they're going to stop. But for yes. like anybody else, this is my nightmare. I need like Wait, a, so you're saying since it's Elaine's idea, it's okay? <laughs> is I'm that just what saying said? like she's probably she's already mentally prepped for this. Okay, I, I need a lot of mental prep time for we're gonna stop. Especially on the way New York City. Oh, I know. Where are you gonna park? Parking situations, picking up, dropping off, one way traffic, yeah. chaos. Ugh. How late into a year can you say Happy New Year, Matt? What's the etiquette? I think it's only one day. I, I really think it's, you can't. It's, you can't give a happy New Year January fifth to someone. I think it's stale at that point. Oh yeah. wow, this is a hot take. <laughs> I don't right. really celebrate the New Year that much. So well, it's just a thing people say. Yeah, I, I know. know. It's literally celebrating anything. I'm just saying the fact that it's even a holiday to me. Well, I how how much can you say Merry Christmas? How big of a window? Like when's the earliest you can say it? December first. I think you say it on the day. You can't give a Merry Christmas on Christmas fucking maybe, Eve. Maybe, like, yeah, like the time Get leading it. up to it. I guess like if you're like right about to be like off of work and you're not going to see that person. Yeah, like, say Merry the last Christmas. day of work, the last day yeah. of the semester, okay, yeah. something like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. And then how late can you say it? Can you say it up till New Year's or no? I mean, I guess a couple days buffer after. Wow, you're I mean, even more strict than them on the show about Happy New Year. You know, I'm not going to call anybody out about it, but I, in my mind, I'd be like, yeah, the moment's passed. We used to get mad about Christmas lights being on in March and stuff like that. I just took Christmas lights down three were, days ago. Were you turning them on at <laughs> night? Wait, you yeah. just took them down? Three days ago, yeah. Why did you just leave them up? I don't I think maybe a strand was out at this point. Okay. They were just well, on the you, porch. You made that sound funnier than it was, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry, Elaine, George, and Kramer prepare to attend a dinner party. Elaine mentions that they should probably bring wine and cake, but George, who has difficulty interpreting the complex fabric of society, as Jerry puts it, thinks the obligation to bring gifts to a home in which he was invited is ludicrous. So he walks in wearing a giant Gore-Tex winter <laughs> coat, indicating to us, the viewer, that it is extremely cold in New York City. Jerry even calls George... Bubble Boy. I did, yeah, catch that. Now, is this before Bubble Boy or after? I can't this remember. Is, this has to be after. You would think. Yeah, I think Bubble yeah. Boy was season four, yes. probably. Right. It w yes, it was season four. So, I'm never angry about it, but I am a little out of touch when it comes to if you're going over to someone's house for an event, you should bring something. That almost never crosses my mind. I think things like that are sort of fading out of culture a little bit. Yeah. But women are better at knowing that stuff. I don't know. 
I'm definitely not the type of person. So you can't ask me. I right. don't know. I think Pepsi and Ring Dings would be better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that did make me think of you. I know. I've used that as a clip before yeah. as a closing thing on our show. <laughs> I would be the hit of the party. <laughs> People would be coming up to me whispering. I'm so glad somebody brought Pepsi and Ring Dings. <laughs> I don't really like Pepsi, though, but still. Yeah. The thought remains the same. You've definitely shown up to my house with your own beverage selection. I know. I bring my own drinks. Yeah. They're not for anybody else. They're just for me. (laughs) Generally, I assume that people aren't as addicted to caffeine as me. No, that's true. aren't going to have what I need at their house. Yeah. (laughs) Jerry and Elaine are dropped off at the Royal Bakery to purchase a chocolate babka while Kramer and George head to the liquor store for wine. However, in what can only be described as a Costanza-style move, they forget to take a number at the counter. The bakery is a zoo. They don't get called, and the last chocolate babka is snatched up. And it turns out by people heading to the same party, there's a super awkward moment with Jerry and Elaine and this couple who are going to the same party. Yeah. They're getting into it. Jerry and Elaine are out of line here. Oh, yeah. That's why I, I mean, said Costanza style. Yeah. This feels out of character for these two. Right. This feels like a George mishap. Totally. How do you not know that you didn't pull a number as other people are being called on? Now, this man of the couple, yeah, did you recognize him? He did seem recognizable to me. Mark Holton played okay. Francis Buxton in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. All right, okay. <laughs> Since the other couple got the last chocolate babka, they're left with having to bring a cinnamon babka, the lesser babka. <laughs> <laughs> There's some great stuff. The babka they get has a hair on it. And then they have to take another number to get a new one, which is infuriating. Oh, I know. That part's awful. You sold us a hair with a kick around it. (laughs) (laughs) Endless waiting. It's a whole thing. The key to eating a black and white cookie, Elaine, is you want to get some black and some white in each bite. Nothing mixes better than vanilla and chocolate. And yet still somehow racial harmony eludes us. (laughs) If people would only look to the cookie... All our problems will be solved. Oh, your views on race relations are just fascinating. You really should do an op-ed piece for the Times. Hmm. Look to the cookie, Elaine. Look to the cookie. Jerry sees the black and white cookie as a metaphor for racial harmony in America. In an episode of Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, Jerry Seinfeld admits to not liking black and white cookies in real life. They're very sugary. I've never had one. Yeah. They were one of those things that, as a kid, all of this stuff looked good to me. Yeah. All of these big bakery goods. But then you realize that it's a lot. (laughs) You know? I don't really eat that many big sugary treats. Oh, you don't? No. (laughs) I'm looking around nervously. (laughs) Ultimately, the cookie causes Jerry to vomit, ending a streak he had been on since June 29th, 1980. (laughs) I really love Jerry's There's a Hair in My Farina story, (laughs) (laughs) talking about when he was a kid and throwing up. (laughs) What I took away from this, though, the whole thing, this ritual of bringing wine and cake and going out and going to a dinner party and being with your friends, I really get the sense of Elaine having this desperation to be an adult. She just wants to be an adult because her friends are so goddamn childish all the time. (laughs) What about the guy who steps on her toe with the cane and mm-hmm. just goes, sorry? 
Like, what is that voice? It's completely insane. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry? You almost took my toe off. What do you watch what you're doing, you lunatic? Meanwhile, Kramer and George face their own set of difficulties over at the wine store. They find a spot right in front of the store, but end up getting blocked in when someone double parks. This is after George already had to break a $100 bill on a bunch of junk at a newsstand so that he can use the change to pay for the wine. One of the things that they buy at the newsstand is a penthouse forum. At Kramer's suggestion. (laughs) Kramer wants to read the letters at the dinner table. (laughs) At the party. (laughs) But yeah, this is one of George's many outbursts about like how we can't have a society because people won't follow the rules and you know i just find myself thinking like yeah he's right i would never be the person that would double park because i would hate to be the person that's stuck on the other side of it like i hate being in an inconvenience like that yeah well with what happened with jerry and elaine forgetting the number and now with what's happened to george it's sort of a reversal of what we would usually expect where Any misfortune that would happen to someone like Elaine would be through maybe her own fault, but generally in more of an egotistical way. But a lot of it is circumstantial, whereas George is usually the one whose downfall is directly tied to some sort of failure on his part. But this time he didn't really do anything wrong. Right. And it's Jerry and Elaine who are just absentmindedly floating around a bakery. Totally. Yeah, maybe the entire series is just this study of karma and... (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. Kramer not wearing a a heavy coat, not carrying a wallet, just that guy, that (laughs) friend who annoys you to no end. They have to pay for everything for Evidently. In this episode, he claims he never has money on him. I don't think that really stays true throughout the whole show, but I've been friends with people like that. Oh, yeah. I might even be that friend Uh, to some people. With how often you're like, hey, we should do this. Can you come pick me up? Oh, that's a new thing. Come on. They're forced to wait for the driver to come back before they can pick up Jerry and Elaine. Disgusted, George likens double parkers to dictators. Because of the cold weather, Kramer insists on going back into the liquor store where they are soon evicted. But not before George's enormous coat accidentally knocks over a bunch of bottles of wine, forcing George to surrender the coat to cover the cost. Outside, it turns out that the double parker bears a striking resemblance to Saddam Hussein, yeah, but has a British accent. Although if you go by the subtitles on Netflix, it just says Saddam Hussein. <laughs> <laughs> the Middle Eastern actor who played Saddam Hussein had a thick accent and his lines were deemed incomprehensible. His voice was dubbed over by Larry David putting on an English accent. Hussein originally asked Kramer and George for directions. But I guess they scaled it down when Larry David had to dub it over. But because of that, it makes it kind of surreal. Right. Almost Lynchian. Yeah. Where you're watching something that doesn't even make any sense. And uh, I know. What is this? What's <laughs> happening? I love that George is scared of Elaine. That's a fun recurring thing throughout the show. He's getting nervous about not being able to pick them up. And he's referencing a specific story. And then they cut to Jerry and Elaine. And Elaine is bringing up that same story. <laughs> Remember that Panama hat? That was nothing. (laughs) What about George yelling at that couple when they come out and it's the wrong people? It's not their car. (laughs) Wasn't talking to you. (laughs) In the end, 
the gang drops off the wine and cake, but decide to leave immediately. Great ending. That's exactly what I would do after an experience like that. I'm always baffled by the Seinfeld one-off friends. Like yeah. this woman that answers the door whose party it is. Well, Who they, is this person? They always act like it's people that they see more regularly. Yeah, I know. Their circle of friends that they reference, and yet they're yeah. people we've never seen. Beth and Arnie. Well, Beth's in two episodes. Yeah. Her husband is Carrie Ellis in the other one. Right. But yeah, I got to get on this internet. <laughs> I miss everything. <laughs> Me. Next up is The Race, season six, episode 10, originally aired December 15th, 1994, which was the exact 16th anniversary of Superman. A lot of Superman material in this episode. Teleplay by Larry David, Tom Gamble, and Max Pross. Story by those three gentlemen, plus Sam Cass. Directed by Andy Ackerman. Guest starring Danny Woodburn as Mickey. Todd Kinsey as Ned Isakoff. Don McManus as Duncan. And Renee Props as Lois. Jerry finally gets to date a woman named Lois, but her boss is an old rival who accuses Jerry of cheating in a race from years prior. Elaine dates a communist while Kramer and Mickey work as mall Santas. This episode was a favorite of Jerry's due to all of the Superman themes. Elaine dating a communist was like a shocking storyline. <laughs> Why? I don't know. It's just that character existing seemed out of time to me, but I'm sure it's not, but it just felt that way. No, it's not. Well, there's definitely more communists now in 2023 than there probably were in 1990, whatever I said that episode was from, what was it, 95, 94? It's a weird thing to be like making its way into sitcom, I guess. Who knew that there could yeah. be some humor mined from communism in America in 1994? Jerry finally dating a woman named Lois allows for the episode to reference Superman nonstop, However, her boss is a guy named Duncan Meyer, an old high school rival. In a big ninth grade race, Jerry inadvertently got a head start that nobody noticed, allowing him to win by a wide margin. Jerry's reputation soared. The fastest kid in school, that whole thing. <laughs> but Duncan always suspected him of cheating. Over the next two decades, Jerry has protected his legacy by refusing to race ever again track coach calling his parents in tears <laughs> your son needs to race on the team well he answered him the same way that he answered everyone else yep i choose not to run don mcmanus plays duncan jerry's old high school rival in the episode ryan styles and bob odenkirk both auditioned for this role bob odenkirk later won the role of ben in episode 8.9 the abstinence Remember, he's training to be a doctor. Yes. And then doesn't have sex with Elaine, and Elaine gets dumb. <laughs> Jerry's response of, I choose not to run, is an homage to former U.S. President Calvin Coolidge, who said pretty much the same thing, I do not choose to run, when asked by reporters if he was planning on running for re-election in 1928. I like the... The Calvin Coolidge reference, and yeah. I believe that fully. That's definitely something that they would like to do, is incorporate that kind of stuff right. into Seinfeld. We got a lot going on here. We got communism. We got Superman. <laughs> yeah. We got Christmas. Elaine finds out Ned, the guy she's currently dating, is a communist, but George is more interested in the personal ads that appear in The Daily Worker. This is the first episode to show Elaine's new apartment after she was kicked out of the place where she had lived for the first five seasons. 
you buzzed up a Jolthy. <laughs> I miss her having that roommate. That always was funny right. to me. So now, according to where we see her address being listed later, she has moved up to the Upper West Side with Jerry and Kramer now. Elaine complains about her Chinese food delivery and refuses it, causing her to be blacklisted from Hop Sings. <laughs> George notices the daily worker in her apartment, realizes that Elaine's boyfriend must be a communist, and then when that's actually confirmed, Elaine is nothing but delighted. George is intrigued by a personal ad that says, quote, appearance not important. <laughs> See, this is why I never want to be around somebody like complaining about their food or whatever. Like, I don't want that association because it's somehow going to come back on me, you know? <laughs> what, that you would get banned from Hop Sings? Yeah. I think she was just saying that the order was wrong. <laughs> and so I was wondering, Sometimes is she right? Sometimes that's enough. I don't know. If she's right, though, that seems like real harsh on her to be banned. Some people don't like what any this, complaints. Uber Eats? Yeah. <laughs> come on. Hop Sings. The Daily Worker actually ceased publication after 1957, but I thought it was hilarious because they were probably thinking, well... That's like the most known communist cultural touchstone name to just okay. associate. So they just figured, who cares? Yeah, yeah. A reference is a reference. Right. That also seems like something that they would do from time to time and not care. Yeah. Like the joke is we're referencing something you know is a communist thing. Right. The fact that it hasn't existed in 40 years is irrelevant. Totally. <laughs> In this episode, George is excited about a woman for whom appearance is not important. However, in episode 19 of season six, The Doodle, he is offended that the woman he's dating says looks aren't important. So somehow his opinion changed. Well, after that experience. No, that comes after this. Oh, okay. So he switches the other way, which doesn't even make any sense. (laughs) I just think that's sort of a fun thing to point out with Seinfeld is when they do contradict themselves. Because that's sort of like a trivia thing. In and of itself. Right. Hey, up. Hey! Where's Lois? She couldn't make it. You know, I can't believe you're really going out with a woman named Lois. I know, finally. <laughs> but George, guess who her boss is? Duncan Meyer. Duncan Meyer? Who's he? Elaine, only one other person in the world knows what I'm about to tell you, and that's George. When we were in the ninth grade, they had us all line up at one end of the schoolyard for this big race to see who was going to represent the school in this track meet. Mm -hmm. I was the last one on the end. George was next to me, and Mr. Bevilacqua, the gym... What's that? Mr. Bevilacqua, the gym teacher. Oh, of course. He was down at the other end. So he yells out, ready, on your mark, get set. And I was so keyed up, I just took off. <laughs> By the time he said go, I was 10 yards ahead of everybody. No. Yes. I looked up, I couldn't believe it. By the time the race was over and I had won, I was shocked. Nobody had noticed the head start. Really? Yes, and I had won by so much, a myth began to grow about my speed. <laughs> Only Duncan suspected something was amiss. He's hated me ever since. And now he's back. Well, what happened when you raced him again? I never did. In four years of high school, I would never race anyone again. Not even to the end of the block or to catch a bus. And so the legend grew. Everyone wanted me to race. They begged me. The track coach called my parents, pleading, telling them that it was a sin for me to waste my God-given talent. But I answered him in the same way I answered everyone. I choose not to run. So now Duncan is back. He's back. As I knew he would be someday. 
Man, that's some tart cider. <laughs> the scene where Jerry and George tell Elaine about the race is pretty funny. I like the in unison sit down on the couch. Because <laughs> as if it's some serious story. Right. <laughs> Later, Jerry and Lois in the car together. Lois turns to him <laughs> out of the blue. Why did you cheat on that race? <laughs> Just blurts that out. <laughs> I know. You have to wonder what that work situation is like with Duncan over there. Would you ever come clean? Would you just tell her? Or would you think like how Jerry's thinking, which is if we have a bad breakup, she might run and tell him. I can't trust her with this secret. It's hard for me because I'm such a bad liar. So, Well, there's no chance that you would have won a race. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, but maybe if I got a a head start that people didn't know about, but I would have come clean like immediately. I would have been going up to the gym teacher there and and been like, we got to rerun this thing. I shouldn't have won. This is a mistake. The teacher's like, we're not doing it again. I don't care. (laughs) Mr. Belovacqua, or however they say that. Belovacqua. Belovacqua, yeah. At Yankee Stadium, George receives a call from Natalie, the personal ad girl. His secretary, Ada, overhears the conversation and suspects George of communist sympathies. The rumor that George is a communist spreads to Steinbrenner, who is delighted with a communist working for the Yankees, they can scout Cuban baseball players for the team. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid. This is actually the second second and final appearance of Ada, the secretary that George hires immediately has sex with and then oh, promises wow. a raise. I didn't realize that was the same girl even. Yeah, she wow. appears in this episode and then never again. Yeah, okay. It's sort of weird. While that's happening, Mickey gets Kramer a job as Santa Claus at Coleman's department store with Mickey as his elf. At Coleman's, Ned gets Kramer interested in communism. Against Mickey's objections, Kramer, as Santa, tries to educate a child on communist beliefs and is accused of spreading communist propaganda. Kramer and Mickey are subsequently fired. (laughs) (laughs) Mickey's hair trigger temper throughout all of this is great. The scene in the department store when Kramer as Santa speaks gibberish to a little Swedish girl who can't speak English is a reference to the 1947 movie Miracle on 34th Street where Santa speaks fluent Dutch to a little refugee girl from Holland. Oh, boy. (laughs) Mark Christopher Lawrence plays the role of Kramer's boss in this episode. He previously appeared in the 12th episode of season four, The Airport, as a luggage valet worker who was asked by Jerry and Elaine how much they should tip him. They like to reuse actors. For That's sure. definitely a thing. Yeah. I love when that kid says, call me, call me, traitor to our country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like if I saw this as a kid, I would have had no idea what they were talking about. Oh, yeah. Most mm-hmm. of the references on Seinfeld always went over my head, and yet it was a show that I definitely watched religiously as early as seventh grade. Right. Because my parents were super into it. Same. And it's just one of those things where there's enough that is funny that you stick with it. And in a weird way, you learn stuff from the show. Absolutely. And as we've talked about, certainly in these Give Us a Seconds and also privately, the movie references that sometimes you know from Seinfeld way before you know from anything else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now it's time for the wonderfully delightful centerpiece, the filet of the episode, the silver tuna. It comes out of a scheme to shut down Duncan and help convince Lois that Jerry didn't cheat in the race. Lois arranges lunch at Monk's with her, Jerry, and Duncan, realizing that Lois doesn't believe his claim that he legitimately won the race. 
Jerry asks George to turn up at Monk's, pretend he has not seen Jerry since high school, and back up his winning story. This part is incredible. I was losing it during this sequence. Duncan is unconvinced and demands that Jerry race him again, even threatening to fire Lois if he declines, all which this, is so insane. All the shit with George making up his high school backstory, though. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh... George! George Costanza! Oh. George Costanza! Kennedy High! Yes, 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 yeah. yes! This is unbelievable! Hey, George! What? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't tell me, don't tell me. It starts with a. Uh... Duncan! <laughs> I haven't seen you guys in, what, 20 years? Yeah. This is Lois. I <laughs> So, what have you uh, been doing with yourself? Well, uh, I'm a comedian. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I, uh, I really wouldn't know about that. I don't watch much TV. I, I like to read. Uh. <laughs> what do you do, a lot of that, uh, did you have a notice kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It strikes me a lot of guys are doing that kind of humor. Yeah, yeah. Well, you really went bald there, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You used to really have a thick, full head of hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Poof. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess I started losing it when I was about 28, uh, right around the time I made my first million. Oh. Yeah. You know, it's true what they say. The first million is the hardest yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you do? I'm an architect. Have you designed any buildings in New York? Have you seen the uh, new addition to the Guggenheim? You did that? Yep, yep. It didn't take very long, either. Well, you've really built yourself up into something. Well, huh? uh, I, uh, I had a dream, yeah, Jerry. Yeah. You know, one can't help but wonder what brings you into a crummy little coffee shop like this. Well, I like to stay in touch with the people. Ah. Uh -huh. You know, you, you got a hole in your sneaker there. What is that, canvas? Yeah, you know, my driver is waiting outside. I really should get running. Good yeah, to see yeah. you guys see again. You. George, George, uh, George, George, hang on a yeah. second, because I haven't seen you in so long. Uh-huh. I thought we might reminisce a little more. You know, Duncan and I were just talking about the day of the big race. Oh, the big race, yes, yes. You were there? Oh, sure, sure, I certainly was. Yeah, I remember that day. Well, I'll never forget it, because that that was the day that I uh, lost my virginity to Miss Stafford, the, uh, the voluptuous homeroom teacher. Miss Stafford? Yes, yes. You know, I was in detention, and she came up behind me while I was erasing the blackboard. George? But I digress. Uh, let me see. Now, as I remember, you were standing at one end of the line. I was right next to you, and... Uh, I remember that we were even for like the first five yards and then boom, boom, you were gone. Did I get a head start? Head start? Oh, no, absolutely not. No. You're satisfied? So you see? No, I'm still not convinced and I never will be. Why don't the two of you just race again? That's a good idea. No, 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 no. Another race, out of the question. I know, you've been saying that for 20 years because you know you can't beat me. You couldn't beat me then and you can't beat me now. Race him, Jerry. Race him. All right. I'll do it. The race is on. 
it's a complete oversell from George. It's and then so forgets, over the top. Forgets the reason why he actually came and was going to Well, they leave. start taking shots at each other. <laughs> George is saying he's an architect. He's oh, saying yeah. he lost his virginity to a teacher. <laughs> Which Duncan recognizes the teacher's name. He's like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. I found it hard to believe, though, that this guy who supposedly was Jerry's rival, meaning they probably went to high school all the way through 12th grade, somehow didn't know that Jerry and George were friends. Yeah, I know. They specifically say that. George says, he doesn't know we're friends. He says that in the buildup. Right. How? They were friends in high school. We've already seen other flashbacks, like like, in the library episode. I like that he had a rival in high school. Well... I had rivals. It was more people that you just didn't like. Yeah, okay. I didn't have like someone that I was literally competing with, right. but you probably had people that you didn't like and that didn't like you. A friend to all, I would say. Well, hated you were, by you were probably just oblivious. Yeah. <laughs> You're like everybody liked me. <laughs> George says he was deflowered by his high school teacher Miss Stafford. Jerry Seinfeld had a real-life crush on a real Miss Stafford that taught at his school. Jerry was six at the time. <laughs> the name of another high school teacher in this episode, Mr. Bellalacqua, played by Claude Earl Jones, was also the name of one of Jerry's real-life teachers. If you notice throughout the episode, Jerry's actually wearing a lot of red and blue to go along with the Superman color scheme. Yeah. Ned insists on ordering dinner from Hop Sings as his father spent much of his time at the restaurant after being blacklisted. Despite her ban, Elaine calls and places the order in Ned's name. When the delivery man sees Elaine there, he blacklists Ned from the restaurant. Horrified at Elaine for naming names, Ned breaks up with her. It's funny how a lot of times with these episodes, the conclusions are everybody on the show is broken up with right. by whoever they were dating in the episode. <laughs> That's kind of the whole story. Totally. When Elaine calls Hop Sings, her name appears on a list posted on the wall along with other people who have also been blacklisted. The other names include the names of some of the crew members. Her name has two exclamation points next to it, <laughs> which is a reference to another episode. Okay. The Jake Jarmel episode. Oh, yeah. Where she was upset at his lack of of exclamation points and then when she's editing his novel for mr lipman mm-hmm. she, there's a specific reference to having the two exclamation points right. meanwhile duncan calls up everyone from high school to come out for the big race and jerry gets worried the legend will die as the race is about to begin kramer's car backfires what, what did you say because that would have some impact well it's his whole legacy yeah he really cares jerry and the watching crowd all mistake kramer's car backfiring for the starter pistol while duncan is caught off guard jerry is given another big head start jerry wins the race again by a wide margin and cements his legacy while duncan is left feeling upset and cheated say he uh, won convincingly this is a big superman homage with the music and the slow motion they actually take the laugh track out because there's that part where he pushes elaine out of the way and there would clearly be a laugh track and all of the audio is gone the wink to the camera, which is the only time a character in the entire show's run, except for the clip shows, mm-hmm. breaks the fourth wall. This is a reference to the old Superman TV series from way back when. 
Jerry Seinfeld tried wearing a brightly colored skin tight racing outfit for the climactic race scene, but co-creator Larry David and director Andy Ackerman both felt the outfit was excessive, so Seinfeld changed back into normal wear. The shooting script for the episode was originally 70 pages as opposed to the usual 40 to 50 for a sitcom script, and the filmed content far exceeded the show's half-hour runtime. As such, numerous scenes were deleted, including an entire subplot showing how Kramer helped George obtain a visa so that he could get to Cuba. Oh, wow. Other cuts included Kramer defending his skinny appearance in the role of Santa Claus. I kind of have the feeling maybe they were thinking it was going to be a two-parter and then it just didn't happen, didn't materialize. Because why else would you waste all that time? Yeah, totally. You have to know it's not going to fit. Right. The stinger of the episode is George in Cuba. It's sort of a parody of his own scenes with Steinbrenner. Yeah, yeah. Where Castro is telling a story that just keeps going on and on, and George (laughs) doesn't know what to say, and he's backing out of the room. Next up is one of the definitive, iconic episodes of the entire series, frequently considered among the top ten, if not top five, I would Mm -hmm. say. That, of course, would be the yada yada, which gives us one of the show's defining catchphrases as well. Totally. Season 8, episode 19, originally airing April 24th, 1997, written by Peter Melman and Jill Franklin, who were nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Writing in a Comedy Series, directed by Andy Ackerman, guest starring Brian Cranston as Tim Watley, Suzanne Cryer as Marcy, Deborah Messing as Beth, Stephen Caffrey as Arnie, Danny Woodburn, once again as Mickey, and both Jill St. John and Robert Wagner appear as Mickey's parents. Robert Wagner and Jill St. John married in real life as well. So kind of adding to the fun well, there you go. of them being Mickey's parents. Yeah, so one of the themes that emerged here was Mickey. Yeah. I just picked random episodes and didn't realize Mickey was in three of the ones we're going to do today, but I really love the Mickey Kramer Same. dynamic. Same. Yeah, everything with Mickey is pretty funny. Mickey always trying to fight Kramer is hilarious to me. Yeah. And they just have a fun banter, and it's something that I wouldn't have thought would work. I don't know that giving Kramer a permanent sidekick would make sense, and he's not permanent. I think he's only in maybe seven episodes or something like that, but yeah, it's a good alternative to Newman. It's fun to pair Kramer with Newman. I love Newman, of course, but it's a nice change of pace. It's a different dynamic. Because even though Newman physically seems more a match, he's very easily intimidated by everyone. Yeah. Whereas Mickey is the aggressive one, (laughs) which is very funny. Another through line, both actresses from Will and Grace in this series of episodes we picked today. That's true. George's new girlfriend abbreviates her stories by saying the phrase yada yada, but there are some questions as to what is being left out. Tim Watley converts to Judaism for the jokes while Elaine tries to help friends adopt and Kramer gets entangled with Mickey while trying to double date. So we have a lot of people returning. Tim Watley, another favorite peripheral character. Yeah, which you told me that he was only in four or five episodes, which I did look up and confirm, and my mind was blown. I just feel like he was in more episodes than that. Yeah, I definitely think one of the strong things that they did throughout the course of the show is disperse the guest appearances because it does feel like a lot of the side characters were much bigger presences than they were, including George's dad, Frank, 
you feel like Frank is such a pivotal part of the show, and he's really not in that many episodes total. Mm. Or Newman, or Mickey, or Watley. These people just came in and out yeah, at the yeah. right times. Cranston is a guy that I've seen tons of reels of him just cracking Jerry up. Yeah, he just seems like an endlessly entertaining guy. Yeah, he's such an incredible actor, because I think people underrate how good he was on Malcolm in the Middle. Yeah. And then you have this Seinfeld run, which, as we said, isn't that many episodes, but I think he's incredible and super funny, and an unbelievable one-off performance in The X-Files, which gets him Breaking Bad, which right. is then one of the defining acting performances in TV Goes history. multi-Emmy winner for it. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm thrilled to see them. And then we have Deborah Messing returning in this one. Always love seeing her. Definitely a favorite of mine from this era. Totally. <laughs> I think maybe it was the Mothman prophecies that put me over the edge with Deborah Messing. It's a good reference point. <laughs> the episode's co-writer, Peter Melman got the inspiration for the episode's Jerry story when an old friend of his made a Jewish joke. Melman felt momentarily offended, but then remembered that his friend had converted to Judaism 20 years before and started to wonder if it had taken that long for his friend to feel comfortable making Jewish jokes. This led him to contemplate the notion of someone making Jewish jokes almost immediately after converting. Though in previous episodes, Dr. Tim Watley had a thick head of hair, actor Brian Cranston had shaved his head to play an astronaut in the movie That Thing You Do, and his hair had not grown back. The episode was allowed by NBC to run longer than the usual 23 minutes, and its slightly above average length was even boasted about in promos. An edited version airs in syndication, cutting out several small scenes and dialogues, but the full-length version was released on the Seinfeld Season 8 DVD collection and streamed on Hulu and then Netflix. So the version that we watched has all the extra stuff, including them standing at the urinal yeah. and all that stuff. It did feel like a slightly longer episode to me. But that's all part of it, too. The budget was going up, because yeah. that set that they build, I believe is the only time you see it. So it's a one-off set. Mm -hmm. was built just for this little stinger opening. And it's the only time we see the coffee shop bathroom, which is what I assume that is, because then the next scene is in the coffee shop. It's an indication that the show has reached its peak in popularity. The oh, budgets yeah. are increasing. They're allowing them extra minutes. Right. They're just having more fun with it. Where does the phrase yada yada rank as far as the stuff that comes out of the show, and where does this episode rank, in your opinion? Is this is this a top episode, or... It is a great episode. You definitely see more in that season four through seven range, because I know you love all the Susan stuff, too, so yeah, season I seven. Do. Yeah. And then when LD leaves the show, and this, sh this show gets weird, yeah. obviously, the last two seasons are way weirder. That doesn't seem as much your thing, but I could be wrong. I like some episodes from that range, but yeah. I love season four like the most, and that's like the era of episodes that I've rewatched the most. Yeah, it's weird. Th those seasons are definitely more realistic, super funny, but way grounded in reality, and then yeah. they start getting further and further in rea from reality as it goes, and yet they were really good at having these memorable episodes with memorable catchphrases and characters come out of Definitely. nowhere. Yeah. And they did it so many goddamn times that it's crazy to think about. And what's great about this, it's not just the yada yada catchphrase. It's the whole beat of it all. Two sentences of truth, 
yada, 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 the end. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It lives on. I think Melman, who wrote the episode, thought that anti-dentite was going to be the phrase that came out of it. It too. is funny. That that part is funny. Yeah, but it's sort of weird to think that, that when would you use that? Well, I know. That seems like such and a random usage. It's almost too clunky, too. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. I would say that you and George would probably have similar answers, actually, to that Desert Island reading list question. I got to read five books. <laughs> Where to start? Jerry, George, Elaine, or Kramer? I think we're going to start with Jerry first. I want to segregate the stories completely this time and see how that works. Shake it up right, a little bit. Let's give it a go. Jerry's dentist, Tim Watley, has just converted to Judaism and is already making Jewish-themed jokes. Jerry, who is Jewish, tells a priest that he thinks Tim only converted for the jokes and that Tim has also been telling Catholic-themed jokes as well, saying that he's offended, but not as a Jew, but as a comedian. However, the priest is unamused by a dentist joke that Jerry makes at the end of their conversation and tells Tim. Tim takes extreme exception to the dentist joke and deliberately prolongs an uncomfortable procedure. Which seems like something you should be arrested for. No kidding. And not be allowed to practice dentistry. (laughs) After hearing Jerry's complaints about Watley, Kramer calls Jerry a rabid anti-dentite. So here's some things that come out of Jerry's story. Notable for the first internet mention in the show's history. Oh, okay. (laughs) When Jerry says, I gotta get on that internet, I miss everything. (laughs) The recurring bit of George showing up places to talk to Jerry is really great. I, and the one in the confessional, I like almost fell out of my chair. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. And it's so great, too, that they knew how funny it was that there's no payoff. It's just that. Right. Just him doing it. Yeah. There's no conversation to follow. But even when he's in the dentist office and he comes in while Jerry's waiting in the yeah. chair, I like that George refers to Watley as the guy. He says, I'll leave when the guy comes in. Yeah, yeah. But then when Watley comes in, he goes, oh, hey, Tim. Like, he knows him. It's just (laughs) funny that he's like, oh, I'll leave when the guy comes in. (laughs) Some Raquel Welch humor. Raquel Welch would then later be on the show in the, I don't remember what episode that is. The one where she doesn't move her arms. Molly Shannon's in it. I know it's stupid, but I love when the priest is losing it over the Raquel Welch joke. (laughs) (laughs) Tim's going for joke-telling immunity by... Not only telling Jewish jokes, but Catholic jokes as well, since he, quote, used to be Catholic. Kramer's speech is pretty hilarious how emotional he gets before calling Jerry the anti-dentite. <laughs> this impassioned speech. <laughs> Meanwhile, with George, his new girlfriend, Marcy, likes to say yada, yada, yada sh- to shorten her stories. He uses this practice himself to avoid mentioning susan's death which i love i mean anytime that the susan information is involved it always gets me laughing so uh well i see you should have seen me in the hot tub today (laughs) why i was naked oh george (laughs) i saw it how'd he look okay i wouldn't see it again (laughs) no a friend of mine thought she got legionnaire's disease in a hot tub really what happened Eh, yada, yada, yada. Just some bad egg salad. I'll be right back. Nice girl. Lovely. I noticed she's big on the phrase yada, yada. Is yada, yada bad? Oh, yada, yada's good. She's very succinct. She is succinct. Yeah, it's like you're dating USA Today. So, 
I'm on Third Avenue, minding my own business, and yada, yada, yada. I get a free massage and a facial. Wow. What a succinct story. <laughs> oh, I'm surprised you drive a Cadillac. Oh, it's, uh, it's not mine. It's my mother's. Oh. Are you close with your parents? Well, they gave birth to me, and yada, yada. Yada what? Yada, yada, yada. Well, we, uh, we were engaged to be married. Uh, we bought the wedding invitations, and uh, yada, yada, yada. I'm still single. <laughs> so what's she doing now? Yada. <laughs> but I, I love talking to you. <laughs> me too. <laughs> so speaking of exes, mm. My old boyfriend came over late last night, and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, I'm really tired today. Marcy tells him that her ex-boyfriend had visited her the night before, and yada, 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 I'm really tired today. George consults Jerry and Elaine, suspecting that Marcy used yada, yada to cover up sex with her ex-boyfriend. Later, George asks Marcy to tell him some of the things she was covering up with yada yadas and discovers that she's a kleptomaniac. I did appreciate the idea of celebrating the art of a succinct story. I do think that is important, and I am familiar with some people who have difficulty with it. Uh-huh. And it is annoying. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not talking about you, Matt. You're making a face. I'm actually not talking about right, you. <laughs> Sometimes you are thinking, okay, I don't need all of this. Just get to it. Right. That doesn't mean I want to hear yada, 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 but people yeah, yeah. do need to get better about editing. Well, I think the hard part is people are trying to get to a punchline of their story, and when you lose the people on the way there, yeah, it's really like, all right, you could trim the fat a little bit. One of the more memorable moments, of course, is Elaine's example of using yada, yada to cover yeah. up sex. A scene that bisque. took a lot of takes to get through because oh, really? Jerry was fucking dying. I mentioned the bisque. <laughs> <laughs> it goes without saying julia louis dreyfus is a comedic genius absolutely she makes these things so funny but that's what the genius of the show is if you're wondering why we're celebrating a show like this why i think seinfeld is considerably better than most sitcoms is not because the writing is so funny it is funny but so are our other shows writing is good bad whatever but the characters are so well-defined and so well-performed that they elevate the situations. The situations range from mundane to absolutely ridiculous by the end of the show, and yet the characters do all the heavy lifting because we know these characters already. We know them in and out, front and back, and they're performed so wonderfully, especially by Julia Louis-Dreyfus in just one of the all-time performances. And yeah. this is just an example of it. I know. She's so how good. do you think that's written on the page? It just says, no, I mentioned the bisque. Right. But she knows. She knows how to make it funny. Absolutely. She lanes it up. <laughs> okay, so let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. What exactly was Marcy's full story with her ex-boyfriend? Because and why doesn't are you George... ever convinced that it wasn't sex? Well, that part kind of drives me nuts because I don't get why George doesn't want to hear it. Other than it's just like, okay... I don't want to hear it because I'm jealous or whatever, but you don't get the sense that that's the way the characters on this show would be. You need to hear what happened. I know. It feels like something is missing there. Right. I don't understand what you're supposed to think actually happened. I have no idea. Yeah. Very I weird. I got out of the shower. I was dripping wet. 
Tell well, me yeah, a different but he, story. But the first part of that yeah. is him acting as if she's already explained something because he goes, oh, well, it was a pretty important part or whatever. But you don't hear what, but what, though? I you know. don't hear what it was. I don't know. There's a lot of mixed messaging going on there about what actually happened. <laughs> but I really love this actress's performance yeah she's good when she does the shoplifting confession yeah because she puts her own little spice on it too and then i looked at her imdb and i saw that she was on a show and she still acts like very regularly i just wasn't super familiar with the actress but she's good she's got the comedic timing she and she does that thing with her tongue and when she's like and then she's like you know (laughs) people can't see what i'm acting out but she does a little motion with her hands you'll know what it's talking about Kramer and Mickey, meanwhile, they have a story that I feel like we could relate to in many ways. (laughs) Kramer and Mickey double date but can't decide which woman, Karen or Julie, is right for which one of them. Kramer decides on Karen but changes his mind after meeting Karen's parents who are revealed to be little people like Mickey, which is weird and I wouldn't say offensive but kind of, I don't know. It's not a great concept to just be like, Oh, her parents are little people, so that means we automatically are switching who we're dating? I, I don't know. It's stupid. Right. But there's funny stuff in the storyline. Mickey's shirt description, 100% cotton, and some wool. Just the <laughs> fact that they both want to wear that shirt. <laughs> okay, well, here's another question for you. First date etiquette. Why can't they just ask the women on the first date? They're going into this first date not sure who's supposed to date who. How did they get into this situation? They met them at the same time at the Gap. Yeah. They picked up two women at the Gap, which seems so implausible. <laughs> but somehow they did. They agreed to go out with them together as a double date. Right. But they didn't decide who was with who. So why not just ask the women what they were thinking? And I think the joke is that you're supposed to get that the women don't know either. Right. But still, <laughs> just ask. I know. Have Half of the problems on this show, an open and honest conversation just solves it immediately. Can never be. (laughs) Kramer at one point blurting out, I don't even know their names. Then the almost fight that always happens between these two. I know. Actually, Elaine with a good idea here, though. Show up early. You guys just sit down before them and then let them decide. Well, that's that's when you think that the women are in the same position because they're already there somehow. Yeah. Elaine is a character reference for Beth and Arnie, a couple who are trying to adopt. So Beth was already on the show. She was with Carrie Elwes. I forget what his character's name was. But Jerry and Elaine were both interested in waiting out their relationship. Turns out that they did get a divorce, but Jerry missed it. Beth has already remarried this other guy, Arnie, and now they're trying to adopt a child. When she mentions Arnie's bad temper in the interview, the couple are rejected for adoption. Arnie pries the truth out of Elaine, but is afraid to tell Beth that he is responsible for their not getting a child. There's a lot of tension between Elaine and Arnie. And the story, when she's recounting it, would you shut up? (laughs) Seems very intense. Although this sort of seems like something I would do. Not the yelling at part, but like if I was like a character reference, I'd accidentally tell some story that like wasn't good. And then, like, immediately realize that I did it, and I'd be, like, walking it back. Oh, we, he's a real film buff. We, yeah. We, we see movies together. Actually, we were together. We saw a movie, Striptease. Do you yeah. know that movie? <laughs> the guy's just like, what? It is hilarious that the movie is Striptease. Elaine goes back and lobbies on behalf of Beth and Arnie and sexually propositions the adoption official as an inducement. 
this is such an insane thing. And I can't believe it. I could not believe they would have never done this yeah. in the first few seasons of the show. No, this, the show is so wild at this yeah. point. Especially this, like, there's like an implication that this is something that's going on for like days. Yeah, because she brings him to a wedding. Right. <laughs> I think I'm gonna be sick. It's so funny though. I know. Now, are we gonna do this the easy way, or are we gonna do this the fun way? He's <laughs> <laughs> just like some dork, dude. I know the casting for that part was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Literally me. <laughs> However, Beth's marriage ends up failing anyway, and she accompanies Jerry to Mickey's wedding to Karen. Elaine, now dating the adoption agent, is dismayed. (laughs) Dating? That's even worse. Yeah. George shows up without Marcy, who was arrested for stealing shoes. Julie runs out, apparently in love with Mickey, and unable to bear seeing him marry Karen. Mickey's dad, played by Robert Wagner, is a dentist as well and has heard about Jerry's joke, and he chastises Jerry for antagonizing Watley. Jerry is comforted by Beth, who harbors the same feelings towards dentists as he does, but also reveals she is racist and anti-Semitic in one of the all-time endings. (laughs) Just, what? (laughs) Hi, Mr. Abbott. That's Dr. Abbott, DDS. Tim Watley was one of my students. And if this wasn't my son's wedding day, I'd knock your teeth out, you anti-dentite bastard. (laughs) Oh, I said something about dentists and it got blown all out of proportion. Hey, what do you call a doctor who fails out of med school? What? A dentist. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. Yeah, who needs them? Not to mention the blacks and the Jews. As Karen and Mickey walk out at the end of the ceremony, Karen says to Kramer, I really wanted you. Proving what I said, which is the fact that they switched because of her parents is so stupid. Yeah. (laughs) I love when Jerry hears that Beth has remarried and they want to adopt. Oh, God, a baby that can add two years to a marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Elaine's consolation prize whenever they're rejected for the adoption is to take them to lunch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From the second when Jerry walks into that church with Beth and Elaine looks over and she talks without moving her mouth and she says, what are you doing here with Beth? Yeah, right. From that point on, it's yeah, like I'm laughing. Hysterically. Totally. I love when Robert Wagner walks into and he just says, hey, Kramer. Yeah. (laughs) This is also one of those episodes where Jerry gets a telemarketer call and then says something and then just hangs up. Yeah, New York Times. I I don't like that. I never liked that on the show because it just felt like it was pandering for applause. It it never felt funny. Mm -hmm. It was just like, oh, people will clap at this. Our last episode is a little bit of an underrated one, and I'd love to hear Matt's takes on it. I'm talking about The Burning, Season 9, Episode 16, March 19th, 1998, written by Jennifer Cretenden and directed by Andy Ackerman, guest-starring Patrick Warburton as David Putty. Once again, Danny Woodburn as Mickey, Daniel Von Bargen as Kruger, and Cindy Ambule as Sophie. 
Kramer and Mickey act out medical scenes for students while Elaine wraps her mind around Putty being religious. Jerry's girlfriend has a mysterious tractor story and says, it's me, over the phone. George tries to get laughs at work. For me, there's nothing better in the episode than Mickey and Kramer, but specifically Kramer, turning this whole gig that they're doing into like this theater. (laughs) (laughs) This is not an episode that I would have originally thought of, but I, I listened to another podcast talking about it a couple years ago, just offhandedly. I guess sort of the point was that it's an underrated episode and then they were mentioning all these things in it. And I was thinking, yeah, this really is a good episode. It's got a lot of stuff. I love the gonorrhea and acting out the cirrhosis of the liver and all the different medical stuff. (laughs) But the stuff with Putty is incredible too. Putty has unbelievable lines in this episode that are so funny. There's just a lot of good stuff. Yeah. The whole story with Putty being religious is based on something in the writer, I believe her name is Crintendon. I I don't know how to say it. Her real life that actually kind of happened. I think the whole concept of (laughs) Putty believing that he is a Christian and can go to heaven, but not care that his girlfriend is going to hell and that somehow you would still be a Christian for thinking like that. (laughs) Yeah. He's just like, it's the most surface level reading of being a good person like just not understanding it at all (laughs) the radio preacher in the car when elaine first hears the religious radio stations the preacher's voice is john o'hurley who plays jay peterman Mm. the stuff with the jesus fish is all good i feel like the jesus fish as a logo was really going through a big thing in the 90s okay and Seinfeld probably popularized it even more. I mean, I hilarious say. that she rips it off his car. <laughs> you took my Jesus, bitch. <laughs> the whole concept of Elaine preferring a one-dimensional boyfriend also checks out. It also completely makes sense. But at the same time, I kind of get it. I kind of get that Putty would sort of be an empty vessel for a religion, and that, but it not really be noticeable or the yeah. main focus of his life. Yeah, it's believable. I guess what I'm saying is, in the universe of Seinfeld, I could believe a scenario where Elaine has known this man now for several years. But I had no idea who was religious. Yeah, yeah. he never brought it up, and she never noticed, right. because she's very self-absorbed. <laughs> it is hilarious when George is like, when did you get back together with Putty? And she's like, I needed to move a dresser or something. <laughs> I think he has maybe his best line, and there's a lot of great Putty lines, but but when he just says... Feels like an Arby's night yeah. out of nowhere. <laughs> I thought you might like that one. <laughs> Just an unbelievable yeah. line. <laughs> so where do you want to eat? Feels like an Arby's night. <laughs> I think that Jerry himself must like Arby's or something. Because there's that episode of Comedians in Cars getting coffee, which feels like obvious product placement for Arby's. But mm-hmm. I think it's him and Seth Rogen eat Arby's. And okay. I don't know. I just feel like he likes Arby's. Or I don't know. I like Arby's. I'm not a big Arby's I'm going to put that out there. I kind of think it's underrated. I never... It's one of those places where I don't understand what you're supposed to get. Well, yeah. Like, I don't get what it is. Right. (laughs) I get it. I get that part. There's a lot of restaurants like that. I'm very limited on what I know (laughs) know how to do. (laughs) Also in this episode, Kruger is an idiot, which is funny, and it's great that George works there. I love at various points whenever... He's talking about Kruger and in other episodes and stuff when he's like, I can go hog wild down there. (laughs) I just think that it's a little underwhelming just because 
this feels like prime real estate for George to go nuts in terms of the character like losing his mind yeah. and frustration at Kruger, and he never goes full crazy. It just feels a little underwhelming. I agree. It feels like it's an underutilized storyline. Yeah. Like they they don't quite get enough juice out of it. I do like this actor as Kruger. The only other thing I really know him from is Basic Instinct. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I guess I probably have seen him in other movies too. Yeah, he kind of seems like one of those guys that pops up. Was he in RoboCop or Die Hard or something like that? One of those Robo-Cop 80s movies? RoboCop kind of seems right. Well, I know the dad from that 70s show is the main villain or one of the main oh, villains wow. in yeah. RoboCop. Kruger was only originally supposed to be in one episode, and then mm. they made it a recurring character over a few over gotcha. that last season, which I'm glad they did because I, I do think it, overall it is pretty funny, even if George could have gone a little crazier in this episode. Jason Alexander, actually, one of his early acting gigs was in a film called The Burning in 1980, which is one of those B horror movies at camp kind of things. Oh, sweet. Factory Blu-ray. You Sounds know, fun. Deal. George's storyline is that he wants to be a workplace comedian but lacks showmanship. I picked this episode to cover just so Matt would maybe learn a little bit from this storyline. I, I knew we were going to get to this, yeah. <laughs> Gaffs <laughs> and bad puns. <laughs> I was watching it like, yeah, I, I this is a lesson I really could learn. <laughs> a lot of moments in life where I really have the crowd and then just bury it. I just felt like once it's just Kruger and George... And Kruger is slacking off, much like how George usually does. There was more potential for a role reversal mm-hmm. where George is getting frustrated. I, I don't know. Kramer and Mickey get an acting gig playing sick for medical students and are assigned gonorrhea and bacterial meningitis, respectively. Kramer gives an impressive theatrical performance surrounding the burning sensation during urination for the med students. Kramer is concerned about being typecast when the hospital wants him to perform gonorrhea again the next week due to his stellar performance. (laughs) Kramer is then attacked by Mickey after trying to take over Mickey's assigned role of cirrhosis of the liver. Yeah, those two are always ready to throw down with each other. Yeah, I think they have a, a fight or a near fight pretty much every time Mickey's on the show. One of the other actors performing the medical diagnoses was Brian Posehn. Yeah, and what was his? The doctor the left doctor a sponge. Left a sponge in me. <laughs> and then one of the med students is Daniel Day Kim, who played Jin on Lost. That's right. Well, I got gonorrhea. <laughs> that seems about right. That's what they gave me. They? The government? He's pretending he's got gonorrhea so med students can diagnose it. And it's a waste of my talent. It's just a little burning. Uh, Mickey, he got bacterial meningitis. You know, that's... Well, I guess there are no small diseases, only small actors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it for me. We got everybody. They get a lot of mileage out of the gonorrhea jokes, kind of some farcical stuff with. Yeah. Him walking in saying, well, I have gonorrhea. (laughs) Elaine saying, that checks out the whole thing. That's what they gave me. The government. (laughs) Sometimes George reveals some little character quirk that isn't really played upon a lot. 
like in conspiracy little moments. theory George yeah. and stuff like that. They peek their head out every now and again. It's really fascinating. You kind of want like a little bit pulls more. Pulls it back real quick. Yeah. Yeah. You're kind of curious as to what George thinks is going on <laughs> out there. <laughs> Jerry's girlfriend, Sophie, calls him with an it's me greeting over the phone, but he does not recognize her voice. It's actually pretty funny when he says, Elaine? She says, no. <laughs> He's like, George? <laughs> <laughs> And then when she gets mad, he's like, I was joking. Yeah. I'm a comedian. (laughs) When Sophie uses the unwelcome It's Me greeting on Jerry's answering machine, George suggests he return the favor when he calls back. Sophie does not recognize Jerry's voice on the phone, thinking that Jerry is a different friend. She reveals that she has not told Jerry about an incident she refers to as the quote-unquote tractor story leaving George and Jerry to speculate on what the tractor story may be. This voice that Jerry starts doing is insane. <laughs> <laughs> what? Who does she think it is? Todd? Rafe. Rafe. <laughs> Jerry sees a scar on Sophie's leg and assumes it was from a tractor accident. Sophie tries to tell Jerry the tractor story, but he tells her that he already knows about it, which confuses her to no end. Yeah. Kramer and Mickey enter, still arguing about being given the role of gonorrhea, and Sophie tells them that her tractor story is that she got gonorrhea from riding a tractor in her bathing suit. (laughs) What? (laughs) Kramer tells her that her story is impossible, and she says that's what her boyfriend told her had happened, (laughs) with the implication, of course, being that her boyfriend gave her gonorrhea. After hearing this, Jerry breaks up with her, leaving the relationship on a high note, or at least comedically. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm out. Whenever they're trying to figure out what the tractor story is and they're going through, like, the theoretical injuries, it's really weird. George makes that joke about does she carry around a pen that she never seems to need. That's a reference to Bob Dole. Okay. Who was running for president in 96. I don't know. What ep- what year did I say this was? 98. So this would have been two years later. But still, I guess, pretty well known. But he had like a paralyzed arm. So he had like that arm with the pen in it all the oh, time. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that people wouldn't go to shake that arm, I guess. Another example of the show getting weird and just doing stuff they would never do earlier in the run is when George just randomly goes, wait a minute, tractor story. Beep, beep. Beep. And then Jerry is just horrified and just go like, what, whoa, what is this? Beep, beep, beep. And George just looks at his hands, and then it cuts to the next scene. Yeah. Like, they just end on that. <laughs> I did like Jerry yelling tractor in her face when he's just trying to get her to tell her the story. Well, I also love when George is effectively leaving on the high notes. His satisfaction when it's actually working. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so pleased with himself. He doesn't have much in life. The Titanic jokes are pretty good. Oh, yeah. I was going to bring that up. It's pretty funny to have that woman So that old woman, she was just a liar, right? (laughs) And a bit of a tramp, too, if you ask me. This is the one where George is ordering food based on conversations, too, right? Mm -hmm. Devil's food and all that stuff. And then he's got that weird thing about hating rock musicians. Oh, right. Their complicated shoes. Yeah. (laughs) Stupid. What do you think about Elaine's PJs? I was digging them. Yeah, sexy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just like full, comfortable pajamas. And I was like, yeah, she looks good. (laughs) I did enjoy when her and Putty were seeing the priest. And he's like, you're both going to hell. You're living in sin. But then it turns into this whole like. (laughs) This is bogus, man. (laughs) 
Yeah, the priest doing the the devil stuff, I guess, would be sort of blasphemous. Yeah. But that storyline starts funny and then sort of sputters out. Yeah. But I definitely love the Kramer Mickey storyline. The tractor stuff is funny too. A lot of great stuff. Arby's night, unbelievable line. <laughs> and then Kruger, Putty, man. All right. So many great characters. This was also the R.I.P. Lloyd Bridges episode. Oh, yeah. just passed away. Jeff and Bo's dad, who was in, I believe, two different episodes. Okay. As Mandelbaum. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, that'll do it for our favorite episodes of Seinfeld Volume 5. I have no idea what the actual runtime of this episode will be in comparison with the last one, but I think we're going to stick with five per episode yeah, from here on I out. I think that's wise. Six is a little too much for me these days. I can't help myself with these notes. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for listening. The The hits just don't stop, so make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Luke, if you're listening, your listener request is coming up next. We haven't forgotten about it. We're going to run through everybody's coming up soon. It's getting more and more crowded, so if you have one, let us know. Reach out on Twitter slash X slash whatever at GreatestPod. And you can reach us via email, greatestpod at gmail.com. It's the best place. Please give us a rating and review and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find us. Thank you so much for listening. Let us know if you'd like a sticker. Find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, Matt Crosby. Reach out, engage. And hey, if you are a big Seinfeld fan and you have a favorite episode that we haven't covered yet, send us an email. Let us know about it. Maybe we'll read it on a future Give us a second, although it might be a while before we do another Seinfeld one, but I'll archive it if you got Seinfeld yeah, thoughts. Yeah, totally. Suggest one. We have tons that we want to do, but we're fluid. If you suggest one and you give us some passionate reasoning, maybe we'll cover that one next time. So if you're into Seinfeld, let us know via email, greatestpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Catch
way. They're real oh. and they're spectacular. <laughs>